John 3, verses 16 through 21. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Would you please bow with me and let's pray. Father, thank you for lavishing such a great love upon us. Father, these verses are ones that we are very familiar with. And Lord, if that familiarity is robbing us of their power and of the depth of knowing your love, forgive us. Please, O oh Lord, break down whatever sin we are clinging to that we may experience this love. Cause the scales to fall from our eyes that we might behold again your great love. Father, we would, as the old preacher said, see Jesus. For it is in his name that we pray, through Christ our Lord. Amen. A couple wrote about their experience in visiting Yellowstone National Park. One of the most visited parks in the United States, and it is best known for the guys who are old faithful. It goes off regularly, and millions have come to see and to witness God's handiwork. The National Park Service constructed a restaurant not far from Old Faithful. And if you make reservations far enough in advance, you can arrive in time, enjoy a meal. Then as the meal is winding down, you can watch the eruption of Old Faithful. This husband and wife had made plans. They were doing that very thing. The time came and the signal was given. And people got up from their table and went to the windows to watch Old Faithful erupt. Well, the husband looked back just out of curiosity and he noticed something. While everyone else had rushed to the windows to watch the eruption, the bus boys came out and they began their work of clearing the tables. Never once looking up. Never once stopping to see this amazing feat of God's creation. Now one could argue, well, they're paid to do a job. Or you could even say they'd seen it so many times before. But the husband was struck with how we often allow our busyness and the demands of life to stop us from seeing what God has done and is doing. And how our very busyness can often cause us to forget about the great promises that He has made. 
I could not help but think that applies to our approach to John 3.16. We know this verse by heart. For many, it's the very first verse you memorized as a child and it has stuck with you throughout the years. Non-believers know John 3.16, can quote it even. But I can't help but wonder, has the familiarity of it robbed us of its impact? We know it's there. We know the truth that God loves us. But are we really amazed by it? We know it's there, but does the profundity of it really grasp our minds and our imagination to think that the God of the universe loves us with such a great love? This passage is written to tell us why Jesus must be lifted up. At the end of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, he utters the words that just as the Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes in Him can have eternal life. John 3.16 begins explaining why Jesus had to come. We see the reason that Jesus died. And the reason is the great love of God. For God so loved the world. That phrase could also be translated, this is how much God loved the world. So if you and I want to understand the love of God, we must look to the cross If we want to see the love of God, we must look to the cross. If we want to experience the love of God, we must look at and dwell at the cross of Jesus Christ. For here we find that the love of God is not just pure emotion. Love at its deepest level is not sentimentality. Love is sacrifice. Love is sacrificing for the good of the other and is loving even when we are unlovable. Because this great love of God so described in verse 16 impacts our past, our present, and our future. You see, this statement is very profound, not because the world is so big, but because the world is so bad. This verse teaches us that God loves us even when we are in opposition to God. This is the truth of what loving your enemies looks like because that's exactly what the world is. The world is opposed to God. The world is in opposition to God. We are God's enemies by nature. And even though we are guilty of all of the above, God loves us anyway. That truth is earth shattering. That truth is life changing. And it was life changing for me. I grew up in church. I was saved when I was nine years old at Vacation Bible School. However, in my teenage years, during my high school years, I began wandering from God. I began pursuing a path where I was doing what I wanted to. Now understand, during that time, I still went to church. I knew the church language. I knew how to give the appearance of the the good little Christian teenager. But behind it all, I was living exactly how I wanted to do, doing what I wanted to do. I was being the hypocrite. One of the youth workers taught the Sunday school class I went to, became a friend. He lived the Christian life. He took an interest in me even though I was living a double life. Coming to basketball games. We'd hang out together and one night... He gave me a ride home. 
As I got ready to get out of the car, he said, Herod, hang on just one second. I want to talk to you. Sure, Rick, what is it? He goes, man, I know what's going on. I said, okay. And he said, I want you to know something. I love you anyway. But more than that, there's a God in heaven who still loves you and sent his son to die for you. At that moment, the Holy Spirit got such a hold on me, I couldn't ignore the Holy Spirit any longer. And in that car, without one verse of just as I am being sung, I repented of my sin and I said, Lord, I need you to forgive me. It was the love of God expressed through a person who lived the love of God that made an impact on my life. And it is that very love of God that you and I and every person ever made hungers for. For at our deepest level, we want to know that we are loved even when we do not deserve it. That's why we are drawn to great love stories. We hunger for this love. We want to see it played out. That's why God has given us as an illustration of sacrificial love, marriage, and friendships that are to show us we are commanded to love one another so that we can walk in the experience of the love of God as demonstrated in Jesus Christ. Because when you see that love, you hunger for it. When I was growing up, as I said, at Clearwater Baptist Church, there was a couple that embodied such a sacrificial love. Their names were Jim and Irene McDonald. They made an impact on my family, not because of the kindness they showed to the Herods throughout the years, but because of one instance later in life. You see, Irene, as they grew older, she became very ill. Ill to the point where her husband Jim could no longer take care of her anymore. They made the decision that she would have to be moved into a, an assisted living center to take care of her medical needs. Jim made the decision that in order to be closer to his bride, he would sell the house. He sold the house, the property, and moved into an apartment that was a block away from the assisted living center where his bride, Irene, was kept. One Saturday morning, my father got up to go visit Jim and Irene. And when he came back, he had a look on his face that said he had something to tell me. Dad said, son, sit down. I want you to tell you, I want to tell you what I just witnessed. So Jim was seated next to Irene's bed. She was asleep because at this point she was sleeping the majority of the day. My dad said, I watched as Jim leaned over and he brushed that hair out of Irene's eyes. And then Jim looked up and said, Arnold, I want you to know something. I love her more now than I did 65 years ago when we got married. Dad said, son, that's what love is. It's not just being there when the times are good. It's a steadfast love. It says, I'm with you. You know why that touches us at a deep level? Because it's what each and every one of us hungers for. We want to know there's somebody there. And it points us to the great love of God that says, I love you. And I've demonstrated that love. You see, God's love redeems us from our past. It takes us when we were enemies of God and it transforms us into children of God. And because of that, it gives us security in the presence. And our security is found in the high cost that the love of God extracted for our redemption. Look at it in verse 16. How much did God love us? He gave His only Son. That word only means unique. One and only, none like Him. 
You see, when we are, are saved, we become children of God, but not children of God in the same manner that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is God in the flesh. We are merely made in the image of God. He is God. And because He is God, He paid the highest price to redeem us. And because that high price was paid, we can live with security, knowing that God will never, ever forsake us. Recently, I have picked up the habit of playing golf. Now, time will tell if this is a good habit or a bad habit, but right now it's happening. Now, knowing myself as I have, not only am I content enough to, to play it, I've also become, well, I've started reading about the history of golf. Okay, if that doesn't say nerd, I don't know what does. It's not enough to play it. I've got to read about it all the time now. So I've started reading biographies about the great players Bobby Jones Francis Wimet and I've been captivated by a player from the 1950s named Ben Hogan to this day Ben Hogan is known as perhaps the greatest ball striker ever ever his feats are legendary Ben Hogan became known not only for his golf but for his equipment company in 1953 he opened up his own golf making, golf club making company with his name on it. When word, he got word that the first batch of clubs had come off the press, he came down to take a look at them, tried them out, went outside the factory and hit with them, came back in, called the manager of the plant to himself and said, I want you to throw every one of those clubs away. Every one of them. The manager looked at it. Ben, Mr. Hogan, you're going to lose over $10,000 if you throw those away. Hogan said, I don't care. My name is on those clubs. And I don't want anyone, any club with my name on it being the less than the best it can be. Those are not good enough to bear my name. Get rid of them. So they did. $10,000 worth of clubs gone. Now hear me carefully. I thank God that our God is greater than Ben Hogan. Because where Ben Hogan said, my name's on them, and if they're not up to stuff, they're gone. God says, my name is on you, and I will never cast you aside. I will never get rid of you. So that even when we fail, God doesn't. Even when we stumble, God doesn't abandon us. Even when we are faithless, God is still faithful. And the reason why is because of the great cost He paid to redeem us. Paul wrote about this on the screen. You'll see Romans 8 verse 32 where Paul wrote in Romans, he said, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God were to give up on us, then the death of Jesus Christ was in vain. That would be God saying, I'm not strong enough to save them, but our God is strong enough, and God will not fail. His plan of salvation will not stop and cannot be thwarted. That's why Paul said with the utmost confidence, He who began a good work in you will see it through to the day of completion in Christ Jesus. That means our present is secure. You say, well, why do bad things happen to us then? Why are there illnesses? Listen to me carefully. Just because we cannot perceive how the love of God is being manifest does not mean it is not present. 
I cling to the scripture where God says, God has loved me enough and did not spare his son. He is working even in the midst of the most difficult circumstances you can imagine because God's love does not fade nor fail. Ever, ever. God's love is true. And because of that, our future is secure. Look at verse 16. You don't perish. No fear of death. But have eternal life. Everlasting life. Now this is not just a reference to the duration of time. It's not just about living forever. Eternal life refers to a quality of life. Life now, a quality lived in the Spirit that demonstrates the love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, patience of God. And that's why He came to save us. Look at verse 17. He didn't send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. The word saved means to heal. In Jesus, the world experiences the healing that only God can give. It means to rescue. It's to lift one out of the pit when they cannot save themselves. We cannot save ourselves. So God came to rescue us. And notice what it says at the beginning of verse 17. Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. Now many read that and they think that means God didn't come to judge our sin. And that's not accurate. God judges sin. When Jesus died on the cross, that was the judgment upon sin. God doesn't ignore our sin. That's why Jesus came. The word condemn means to give shame. Jesus did not come to give shame to our condition. Because that's where we already are. Verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. Jesus didn't have to come to add to our shame because our shame is already there. Think about if you were out swimming in the ocean. You start to encounter trouble. The lifeguard sees you're struggling, so the lifeguard swims out. Now, what, what would it be like if that lifeguard stops three feet from you? You're struggling, you're struggling, but the lifeguard's treading water and that lifeguard looks at you and says, just in case you didn't know it, you're drowning. What were you thinking? Why did you swim out here? You're not Michael Phelps. Okay? Let's just talk about this for a moment. That, that's not smart to be out here swimming like this. You don't want the lifeguard to do that. You know you're drowning. You see, the world, we work to cover up our shame. We try to ignore it. We try to, to, to do things that minimize our sense of guilt and shame. But verse 18 points out we can't escape that because when we do not believe in the name of Jesus Christ, we compound our shame. So we are in a sense of shame because of our sin. Jesus didn't come to shame us. He came to save us. But if we reject the cross, our shame is multiplied because we are rejecting the means of rescue. Carry with me a little further. The lifeguard illustration. The lifeguard swims out and starts to save you. But you say, no, no, I can save myself. I can save myself. Get away, get away, get away, get away, get away. We would look at the person who does that and say, that's not smart. That, I mean, you made a mistake in swimming out that far and not being prepared. And now you're making it worse by rejecting the offer of salvation. 
So the shame is compounded when we reject the offer of salvation. That's why verse 19 says this is the judgment. Here's the verdict. This gives us insight now as to why people don't respond to the offer of salvation. Here's the verdict. Lights come into the world. That's what John 1 said. The light has shone in the darkness. The light shines in the darkness. But people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Light speaks of truth, revelation, morality, goodness, the character of God. But it says that people love the darkness. Now darkness is evil. It's life in rebellion. It's life without God. And this love for evil is reflected in their works. Now when we hear words like darkness and evil, we tend to think the worst. We think of those people out there, the adulterers, the liars, the murderer, the pornographer. We always define evil as what the other person does. We need to recalibrate our definition of evil. Evil is living apart from God. Now, we may argue there are different levels of evil. But the point is, life without God, living life without seeking God, is under that category of evil. That means when you and I live our lives without thinking of God, we're evil. When we live with no dependence upon God, we fall under the category of evil. When we live pridefully thinking we don't need Jesus, we're evil. That person who believes they are good without a Savior, falls under the category of evil and we read here where that keeps them from coming to the light verse 20 goes a step further what keeps people from responding to the love of God everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light here's the reason why lest his work should be exposed Jesus did not come to shame us but it's our shame that keeps us from coming to him our shame keeps us from coming to Jesus because we don't want to acknowledge it. When my daughter Emma got sick, of course, our life has changed dramatically. And for a period of time, everything else was put on hold. I mean everything else, and I'm embarrassed to admit it, but one of the things that got put on hold was going to the dentist until recently. Okay, we've gotten into a normal routine. It's time to go back. So our family, we've all made appointments and been, so it was my turn. I really felt sorry for the hygienist. In fact, when I was in the chair and she came in, I looked at her and I said, first, I want to apologize to you for what you're about to experience. I'm really sorry. It's been a while and I just wanted to prepare you for this. It was embarrassing. You know, it's amazing. That same embarrassment keeps people from going to the doctor, to the dentist. Sense of embarrassment. Well, I know what they're going to tell me. I don't need to go. My tooth is fine. I don't need to go to the dentist. They're afraid. I don't want to hear what that doctor has to say. So the sense of shame keeps us from going. Because we don't want to acknowledge we've got a problem. That's exactly what happens with the gospel. To come to Christ is to acknowledge, I need a savior. I'm evil. I need a redeemer and I need the love of God. 
Because verse 21 tells us something that we all need to know. Whoever does what is true comes to the light. Now you notice it says does what is true, not believes what is true. Because John wants us to see that faith is not just believing. Faith is in action. How does one do what is true? They come to the light. You repent. Doing what is true is recognizing I can't save myself. I'm in opposition to God, but God loves me. And I want to know that love. I want to be redeemed. I want to come to Him. So he says, whoever does what is true comes to the light. That one who repents, who seeks Jesus, seeks God, comes to Jesus. Now look at the reason why. So it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. See, that tells us that when we come to God, he's the one that's glorified. No one can boast when they come to Christ. No one can say, I was humble enough that I came to Jesus. No one can say, I was smart enough and I figured it out. No one can say, I was good enough. When we come to Christ, it is our confession of utter dependence upon God. This is the truth of what John wrote in John chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. That to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born. Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That's why Christians should be the most thankful people of all. Because we have been saved because of God's love. And because God brought us to Him. And it is His work that saves us. So we give Him praise. He came because He loves us. He redeems us because He loves us. And He loves us despite the fact we are His enemies. Max Lucado tells of a mother and a, a mother and a daughter that lived outside of Rio de Janeiro. They lived in the poor part of town because they were just below the poverty line. Maria did the best she could to eke out a living for her and her daughter Christina, but they still lived in a one-room house that had a wooden and dirt floor. They slept on pallets in the floor. She cleaned houses, but it was still just barely enough to get by. Christina. Christina was the type of young lady that had a fire in her eye. She wanted to experience life. She knew there was more than sleeping on a pallet, that, that in Rio de Janeiro there would be opportunities where she could make a real life and make, a, make money and then no, no satisfaction that everybody else seemed to have. That's why when Maria got up one morning and saw that Christina was gone, her heart broke. Maria knew what would happen. She knew what would happen to a girl that really had no skills that had gone into Rio de Janeiro. There would only be one thing that she would have to resort to, to survive. Maria, Maria grabbed what little money she had, grabbed her purse, and went to the bus station to get a ticket to the city. But before she got on the bus, she did one final thing. She took the money she had and she got into one of those photo booths that took pictures of her face just over and over and over again. And she got to the city and she began putting those up. All, all over the places, in the worst parts of the city, everywhere she could find. Then when she was out of pictures, she got back on the bus and went to her home to wait and pray. Weeks went by. Months went by. One morning, Christina got up and descended the stairs of the hotel she'd been living in, paying for a room week by week. The fire was gone from her eyes now. 
Her face had aged years in a few months. Her body worn out. She made her way down the steps and something caught her eye. She stopped for a moment on the bottom step and shook her head and closed her eyes and opened them again. That couldn't be a picture of her mom. There, tucked in the side of a front picture frame, was a small three-by-five picture of her mother. Christina went and picked up the picture and looked at it, and tears began coming down her face. Then she turned it over, and on the back of every picture, her mother had written these words. Christina, no matter what you've done, no matter what you've become, I love you. Please come home. And Maria did. God has said to us, in the cross, His picture, no matter what you've done, what you've become, I love you. You can come home. Come home. Bow your heads with me, if you will.